This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to Landmark, episode 75. I cannot, cannot believe or fathom the fact we have hit episode 75. I mean, when I think about the fact that means I've done this 75 times, I've introduced this podcast 75 times, my brain just melts out of my ears. I can't, that's loads. I'm so proud. I love you guys. Also, I'm like deliriously tired. So this is probably going to be a fun intro. (laughs) Anyway, this week I am talking to Gail Carragher and oh my goodness me, uh, we discussed the heroine's journey and you are going to be able to hear me have a number of like seat gripping epiphanies. And uh, yeah, I mean, Gail has a brain the size of a planet. She is deeply fascinating uh, to talk to and also a lovely human and super fun uh, to interview. So I I absolutely had a blast uh, talking to Gail. So we'll get on to that uh, shortly. First of all, though, Last week's question was, do you have an author business plan? Edwin said, I've had side gigs before making the decision to get serious about writing to publish, which meant I already had a basic structure for handling the accounting and taxes. That's one aspect of this writing life I never had to fuss over. As for a business plan, it's get the next novel published. And since this is book three in a series, come up with a plan to give it a true launch to generate buzz all around three books. Long term, I want to generate enough income from book sales to boost my post bread and butter job retirement, I'm not that far off, to maintain a lifestyle similar to what I have now. Lots of you said that you don't have a business plan, so Kerry, Ian, uh, Val, uh, lots of you are going to go and create a uh, business plan now, so that's great news. Hopefully the podcast inspired you. Nathan Scammell said, I am enjoying your podcast, but your voice is so soothing. I keep thinking I'm listening to mindfulness. I don't know whether to make notes or meditate, which I think is hilarious. I... I thought that my voice was very like up and down, but um, perhaps not. I I never realised my voice was so soothing. Maybe we should all sit down together and close our eyes and breathe in through our noses and out through our mouths to meditate. (laughs) Or perhaps not. Perhaps we should just drink gin and cause fucking chaos. Scott Kavanagh said, I just listened to this episode. Joanna Penn is fucking awesome. Yes, yes, she is. Uh, Scott continues to say, I am a writer who wants a long-term relationship with money, though right now my business plan is probably a bit short-term. It reads more like I am looking to have a quick snog behind the bike sheds with money instead of building a long-term relationship. This episode gave me lots to think about and I've picked up Joanna's business plan book after listening. Awesome. Uh, I definitely want to uh, go back and reassess when I had a look at my business plan. Um, 
because it used to be on post-its. I can't remember if I said that in the episode. And I did start writing it up. I actually thought I'd finished it and I haven't. So um, I'm going to have to go back and add another thing to my to-do list as it's still about 50% on the post-its rather than written up. Okay, last comment. Tom Fowler says, I had one, uh, as in a business plan. Then COVID happened and shit on everything. I've been getting by since with a combination of my old plan scaled down a bit and winging it, which I think... Lots of us have been doing, if we're perfectly honest. All right, this week's question is, do you write the heroine or the hero's journey? And I think that's going to be a hard one to answer until you've listened to the episode. Um, Yeah, so let me know, which one do you write? The book recommendation this week is Your Press Release is Breaking My Heart by Janet Murray. I read this uh, like a week or two ago. Fantastic book, full of tips and advice for how you can get um, like traditional media uh, coverage uh, for your books, your launches and all of that good stuff. I definitely took a shit ton of notes and um, I'm going to be implementing some of those for some, not all, but some of my upcoming launches. So yeah, I will put um, some affiliate links to purchase that in the show notes. All right, in personal news, what a fucking week I've had this week. I am still working on this time blocking and I thought it would be really sensible to try and smush in all of my podcasts, all of like my meetings, all of everything into one week, which has meant I've done five podcast interviews um, I also, I'm now doing this podcast and I have Next Level Authors, uh, which I co-host with Dan, which I'm recording after I finish doing this. What do I have then? And then I have, and then, oh, and then I've done a consultation. I've had three meetings. I've also been interviewed this week. It has been crazy busy. And this is all aside from the fact that I still had to do work. This is the thing. Sasha assumed she could do all of these meetings and peopling and not be fucking ruined and tired and peopled out and of course it was all of those things (laughs) ruined tired peopled out anyway so I haven't I I basically ended up spending this whole week doing admin which is not at all what I wanted however I am determined by the end of Sunday to have emptied my inbox, which is still huge, um, and to have done everything that I need to so that next week I can pretty much do nothing other than writing. I am so relieved to be able to say that I am inching really quite close now to the end of side characters. Now I do have to do an edit but usually those edits only take me about a week and then I can hand it to somebody to read uh, to make sure I've made sense in my delirium. So yes I am chomping at the bit. When I get this close to the end of a book all I want to do is finish the damn book. I don't want to do anything else. So in some ways even though this week has been exhausting I I think it, it was the right thing because it means that next week I can just focus on getting the book done. Um, yeah, so I am also planning a bit of another class. Um, I, I have flip-flopped backwards and forwards over doing a class on description because lots of you have asked for, um, you know, a resource or something on description. And oh, I flip-flopped because I wasn't sure if I should write a book or do the course. Anyway, 
whilst I am still pondering that, I I have decided to do a different class and I've posted uh, some questions in the Facebook group, the Rebel Authors Facebook group, where lots of you have answered. So thank you very much for that. I realise I haven't actually told you the name of it. So I'm looking at uh, potentially, I'm still saying potentially because I just want to make sure that I can cover everything that I want to cover but the topic is going to be how to write full-time like how to go from being in a day job to writing full-time so if you have questions on that that you would like to see and you're keen to take a course or a class on that then jump into the Rebel Authors Facebook group and um, just have a search for the post and let me know any questions you have. I know I mentioned last week that I would be announcing something um, and I was waiting for like one little uh thing to be finished that thing is now finished uh but i would like to do something special for announcing it so there will be a mini episode next week it'll only be about five minutes long i'm not sure when i will post that um mini episode it will either be well it could be out already by the time you're listening to this or it will come out shortly afterwards but it will definitely be out before the next uh, episode so look out for that is it is an opportunity a very exciting opportunity for everybody listening so yes Okay, two more things. My Facebook group, I'm astonished, but my Facebook group has now reached 1500 members, which I am super, super excited about. I'm very grateful. Thank you to everybody who makes it such a fun, supportive place to be. Um, And to celebrate, I've posted a poll in the group to say, would you like a like question and answer session? Would you like a live writing sprint? So yes, come join that. And then uh, in the Facebook group, I will be doing a live Q&A with Mark Lefebvre. I've mentioned this every week for a couple of weeks, but it is now approaching. Uh, So it's going to be on the 17th of March at 8pm UK time. So make sure you hop on over into the Facebook group uh, and join us. That session is going to be on wide marketing. So if you would like to earn uh, more money wide, or if you would like to get more sales, or if you'd like to go wide, if you're coming out of KU, um, or if you're already wide and not selling, then um, this is the Q&A for you. All right, Rebel of the Week this week is Victoria L.K. Williams. Victoria said, um, you have to know something about me before we begin. I have been landscaping since high school in some form or another, and it has been all-consuming in my life, making my business or an employer's business the best it can be. Then along came my son. He came late in our marriage and was another all-consuming item in my life. There was no room for any extras and childhood dreams were put aside. Then about seven years ago, I was in a business meeting with a group of friends and the question came up and went around the table that went something along the lines of, if you had nothing stopping you, what would you do to change your life? Without thinking, I blurted out that I would write a book and have just one person read it. That should have been the end of it. I didn't even take myself seriously, but those friends did, and boy, did they hone in on the art of nagging. Every week I was asked, did you write? Did you start? How's it going? Finally, out of a desperate need for space, uh, sorry, for peace, I started writing. It took about nine months to get the first draft done. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but I'd read enough books and loved what I was writing, so it went smoothly. It was six years ago that I published my first book. I have now written 22. I'm not making a ton of money and not even trying to because my landscaping is still my consuming portion of my life. But someday I'm going to retire and then look out world. Oh, I love this. And I love the fact that 
this is something that other people encouraged you to do as well and like how supportive your friends are I just think that is wonderful and also like a rebellion against you know what you like what your what the expectations were in terms of your day job if you would like to be a rebel of the week then please do send in your story and please do because we are getting low again uh it can be any kind of rebellion big small or somewhere in between you can email your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me at rebelauthorpod I, I don't know what happened this week, but we have had a bumper crop of patrons. So a huge and enormous thank you to um, all of my new patrons. We have Harry Brooks, Holly Finn and Scott Kavanagh. Thank you so much, guys. I really, really appreciate it. And of course, a mammoth thank you to all of the show's existing patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, as well as joining my exclusive Poison and Prose sessions, uh, and I think the next one is around the middle of uh, March. I definitely uh, put it into the Patreon, so just look for uh, for that in the posts. Um, anyway, <laughs> then you can do so by visiting uh, patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black, and you can do that from just uh, as little as $2 a month. All right, enough chinwag. Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. I am super excited by today's guest. I am joined by Gail Carragher. Gail has multiple New York Times bestsellers and over a million books in print in dozens of different languages. She writes comedies of manners mixed with urban fantasy and sexy queer joy as G.L. Carragher. She is best known for the Parasol Protectorate and Finishing School series. She was once an archaeologist and is fond of shoes, octopuses and tea. So we share two things in common because I am super fond of expensive shoes and um, I really want an octopus tattoo. So... Yeah, oh I gosh. love that. That is you, very exciting. I, have you watched um, My Octopus Teacher on Netflix? No, and everybody keeps telling me to, and it is and it's merely my obstreperousness in that I now, because so many people have told me to, I don't want to anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, but I know I should. It is, it is just the most magical thing I've watched in a really long time. Oh. And um, he, he, he literally makes BFFs with this octopus. And, oh. and, and it made me cry. And I'm like dead on the inside. <laughs> so that is going some. <laughs> I love them so much. They're like our squishy friends. And I adore them. I also eat them. Don't think I'm a noble person. Uh, they're also tasty. But I respect the octopus. I think they are brilliant, fabulous creatures. So I legitimately love them as a trademark for me, which is accidental, but on purpose, I guess. Amazing. (laughs) And tell me just quickly, the shoes, what kind of shoes do you like? It's funny because we're actually in my living room and I could just turn the screen. We're talking to each other over a video conference and uh, that shall remain nameless. But uh, I could show you my shoes because they are in a display case. (gasps) Rather like most authors have books. I just do that with my shoes. Um, I I am uh, very influenced by vintage fashion so I tend to go for Italian shoemakers that specialize in like vintage recreation deco style shoes and so I really like this Italian shoemaker named Via Spiga Um, I just happen to have the feet that fit those shapes of shoes that come out of that part of Europe, I guess. <laughs> Amazing. Um, I am. Um, what about you? What's your well, name? so um, at the moment, I am sort of 
saving for a pair of um, Valentino rock studs just because mm. they're like spiky and healed and sexy and yes. like dominant and I want them yes. um but I have three pairs of Christian Louboutins um Ooh. one is just like a bog standard black pair, bog standard as if they could ever be bog standard but there's just like a black pair um like my mom I love my mom but she never allowed me to have painted shoes as a kid mm. so um I first was soon as soon as I had a big chunk of writing money I was like I'm gonna buy some painted shoes and then I had a pair of like Cinderella sparkly ones they are so sparkly I've never seen sparkly shoes like them and then I have this pair that are um like a marble effect I don't know how else to describe them that sounds great but have you ever heard of irregular choice I was about to say irregular choice I have one pair um so uh Christian Louboutins don't fit me which I consider a great thing uh they just don't make for my foot irregular choices do sort of fit me but they I don't find them very comfortable no but I not. have I have a pair of regular choices that are the great regular choices are uh, one that kind I like I like a really weird statement shoe um so I have two heart low oh oh which ones do you have I have a black pair um that are like they have like flowers all over the side and they're like sequined up the back and like with the sort of funny um acrylic heel but I got married in a pair of them so I have like a yes. silvery yeah and then like as if they weren't outrageous enough I sc- took a hot glue gun to them and stuck a purple flower on them as well I can't believe like also this is totally not what we're supposed to be talking about but hey I love shoes welcome to shoes shoe talk <laughs> with uh, Gail and Sasha where will be my irregular choices are pinstriped wedges with oh. a fluorescent pink uh sole and um like Asian influenced flower like cherry flowers bright pink and um kind of acid apple green cherry flower design over the uh, pinstripe on the side of the toe and then they have like lace around the ankle and like a little bright pink um border they're they are fantastic I love them they are wicked uncomfortable yes um (laughs) but I cannot get rid of them even though I only wear them for about a half an hour at a time and then I have to sit and look gorgeous in them yeah (laughs) I love them yeah absolutely I'm completely the same oh I love this I love this chat um oh I guess we should talk about writing and your books your amazing books (laughs) okay so um before we dive into okay wait 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 wait, wait. one more thing uh one of the things I do that parallels these two is I buy myself or used to buy myself a new pair of shoes every time I had a new book come out Mm. do you do that because I recommend it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I think my wife would kill me because the shoes that I buy are so bloody expensive no um also she 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 uh had as much as my I have an obsession for expensive shoes she loves expensive watches and so currently oh. she's a bit like mm, you've got three pairs of shoes and I have no expensive watches so oh yeah my my ex's greatest regret of her life was that we could not she had bigger feet than me so we could not <laughs> share shoes <laughs> she was like what's the point if I can't access your closet I know <laughs> oh too bad <laughs> too bad honey yeah <laughs> Okay, tell everyone a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are now. Sure. Uh, So I'm a traditionally published author originally. My house is Hachette. Um, I worked with both, worked, I suppose, work, work, worked, uh, past tense, maybe, not sure, Um, with Orbit and uh, Yen Press, which is their manga line, and um, 
I'm trying to remember. They, they have different names. Little Brown Book for Young Readers, which I can't remember what the what the UK name is. But I worked with both the American and the UK equivalents um, for three larger series, uh, one of which is YA and two of which are adult. And now I'm almost entirely, I'm technically hybrid, but I'm almost entirely self-published. Most of the bulk of my income now comes from the self-published stuff. So I had a pretty traditional journey in terms of I'd written a bunch of books. One of those eventually got picked up by a publisher first, and then I got an agent. And after that, I sort of went the traditional route, but I have always loved podcasts from the very beginning to back in like 2005, 2006. So I listened to a lot of podcast fiction authors who also kind of were early inroads into independent. Um, so I always like to say I'm a, um, I'm a traditionally published author who acts like a self-published author most of the time because all my friends were into self-publishing super early on. Um, and so I kind of always kept an eye on self-publishing and I made little baby short story inroads early on experimentally you know, prior to when like the platforms were really established and stuff. Um, and then I was pretty prepared to transition into hybrid early on. And I'm really lucky. I have a very um, a ballsy, I can swear on this podcast. Yeah, I you can. <laughs> I, have a, I have a ball buster of an agent. Um, and I walked away from my first contract um, because the option clause was too open and I was an academic at the time and they wanted to option my nonfiction. And I was like, I literally can't sign that contract. Like they have to at least exempt nonfiction. Um, and so my agent always knew that the option clause was really something that I was a deal breaker for me. And so my option clauses have always been very tight, which means that the traditional publishers I've worked with only really have the rights to very specific things that I write, um, including in the same universe. So I could take a platform that they had given me or helped me to build this one universe, the Parasolverse, and write pretty much anything I wanted within that universe um, because my options were, because I had that liberty as a traditionally published author, which many don't. Mm -hmm. um, but that also really helped me make this transition into indie successful, I think. Yeah, I think that, I mean, there are so many authors who are not um, as sharp on those details and end up, you know, really getting shafted with contracts. And um, yeah, I mean, so much respect to you for for actually, you know, getting, pinning down a publisher and getting them to agree <laughs> to such tight clauses. I mean, like serious, like points to you. Well, this is um, another thing I could say on this podcast, because again, we're allowed to swear, but um, I have literally shouted down the phone line to um, editors many of whom are now ex-editors not my fault I don't think but um, you forget that I don't want this as badly as other authors do and that I think really helped me is like I did have another career for a very long time as well as this one and I loved my alternate career I still love it um, and I was prepared to not be a writer like I was like I don't care that much and I was always prepared to be like if I really want to be published I can always self-publish like I just didn't care that much and so I was willing to walk in a way that I think really hungry newer authors aren't and and so I think that helped me a lot oh totally <laughs> no and, to give yeah yeah absolutely I am um, uh, funnily enough I interviewed my dad actually <laughs> on this podcast a little while ago um because he's had a um, like a really interesting journey to where his company is now he, he's created this whole natural health um company and um one of the things one of the lessons that I took from that with discussion with him to bring into writing is to never ever ever go into a negotiation hungry mm. 
because so you're true. immediately yeah. on the back foot. So I love that you just said that. Um, okay, so we are here to talk about your book, The Heroine's Journey. So first of all, can you explain what The Heroine's Journey is and how it differs from what I suspect many writers will have heard previously, which is The Hero's Journey? So um, so this is my first nonfiction book and mostly, I hope my only one, uh, I'm mostly a fiction writer, but all of what I write is the heroine's journey as it turns out. Um, I learned about this myth in conjunction with the hero's journey as a classicist as part of my undergraduate degree. Um, and I kind of assumed when I went into writing that everybody else has it too. Um, but, but that turns out not to be the case. <laughs> as, I, as I was on the like circuit and talking to other writers and stuff, People know about Joseph Campbell and people know about the hero's journey, mostly as it applies to Star Wars, but also to other stuff. Um, but nobody seems to realize that there is this parallel model, which is the heroine's journey. Um, and I, I have to say out the get-go before I forget that they're non-gendered journeys. So um, a biologically female main character can be a hero and often is, and a biologically male main character <laughs> can be a heroine. Um, so I, I kind of need to make that clear. The, the monikers are just what we have given these two journeys um, because uh, they source for the Western mindset in particular in like the ancient myths from the ancient world, mostly in the Mediterranean region. And so, you actually anyway, include um, them as well in the book, do, which is yeah, really interesting. Yeah. I included three source myths. So Campbell talks about Gil Gilgamesh mainly. Um, and then, you know, he wrote the hero, hero's journey. His perspective when writing the hero's journey is very uh, Jungian psychological analysis. So it's kind of parallel to a personal journey that people are on in life. Um, Jungian psychologists conflate biological sex and gender all the time. So there's a big kind of concern, overarching concern I have with that particular form of analysis. Um, so, uh, but what I interests me in these two journeys is their narrative application in terms of like plot, theme, messaging, archetypes and tropes that we use as writers and how as writers actually knowing kind of the concrete steps of these two journeys can help us. Um, just because I feel like as a writer, a fiction writer, it's really good to kind of know which journey you're on because I think a lot of writers get into writer's block situations because they don't realize that they're actually writing, for example, a heroine's journey. They think they're writing a hero's journey and they're not. Um, and that's because there's sort of core differences in the narrative beats, but also in the kind of motivations and what is going to push your character forward and what is going to push your story forward in amorphous ways, but also in sort of concrete plot ways and stuff. Um, and that has to do with how the characters define power and strength, action and motivation. And so I basically kind of took a look at the two journeys in terms of just really practical writer craft. Um, and I wrote this book where I give you the hero's journey because I feel like everybody has that to model on. And so if you hear me explain it, you'll understand what language I'm using when I then explain the heroine's journey, which as it turns out, a lot of people don't study. And um, a lot of people, a lot of writers just don't know about and that it exists as an alternate model. Um, and I should say there is another alternate, there are other alternate models, there are other myths, there are non-Western myths, there's plenty of other scope, but like, I just wanted to really tackle the heroine's journey because I would say things like this and I would talk about it, assuming other people had this background knowledge um, at events or on interviews. And then inevitably someone in the audience would be like, this is fascinating, where do I get the book on it? And I was like, hmm, funny you should ask that question. There isn't a book. 
um, there is a Jungian and analytical book by, by Murdoch called The Heroine's Journey, but I wanted the writer version. And eventually I was like, well, I guess I have to write it. <laughs> Someone has to write it. So I wrote it. When you talk about um, like the different motivations, different power dynamics and different, what was the other one? Did you say action? I can't remember the yeah, last motiv- one you said. Uh, yeah, yeah. What are those key Strength. differences? So um, so the, this is it's really hard to unpack uh, right away because uh, you, most of the listeners are going to have a psychological break at this juncture, <laughs> but... Um, Here's nothing like Here we go. Yeah, Here's okay. The Are you ready? The, the bold statement I'm going to make, which is a heroine as a main character defines strength or has defined strength has for her by your narrative as the ability to ask for help from others. That ability is a strength. And Americans in particular, but generally the Western world has a real hard time with the idea that asking for help is strong. But for a heroine, it is. And her mainstay motivation is continued networking. So uh, a hero is usually continually motivated by being isolated and being put in places where he must self-rely and he must become stronger through self-reliance, through developing skills, through developing survival techniques. And you can think of classic heroes as like Wonder Woman is a classic hero, but also, all of the suspense novels that you might be aware of, like you know the, lead, the Jack Reacher books or the Jason Bourne, or like the Bourne Identity series or whatever, where um, the hero is made strong by his own innate abilities or abilities that he learns and acquires and then acts on. Um, the heroine usually is motivated initially by having a familial network taken away from her, so having being broken. So she is actually materially damaged by isolation. And what she wants is connection. That's her driver and motivation is she wants to reconnect. And so her journey and what pushes her forward is continued networking. And so she gathers information. She can turn into an extremely good general in terms of she's really good at identifying other people's skills and then activating them. She's also really good at identifying her own skills and weaknesses and learning how to fill those in through asking for help from other people. And so her journey is one of connection. And so these narrative arcs where you see a heroine being isolated and therefore in trouble because of it, and then reaching out and connecting with people continually, that's like this withdrawal and return pattern that she goes on. And I'm using gender pronouns, acknowledging that that there are other options. Um, And so what her end result is, and it is often the end of the journey that like indicates which journey you've been on, interestingly enough, is always one of connection, which is why, for example, a lot of young adult books are about this because a lot of young adult books are about finding your your place in the universe. Harry Potter is a heroine's journey, but also um, a lot of all romances are heroine's journey because they are innately about connection. And so, um, so like kind of learning to train your brain to this idea that as a storyteller, if you're writing a heroine's journey um, and you keep trying to isolate your heroine because that will put her in a challenge position, which is great if you're writing a hero's journey. Um, And suddenly you hit up inertia all the time as a writer, it's because you need to throw a new character at her or you need to write a scene of dialogue where she's gonna get into a conversation and she can exchange information or you need like an emotional connection or an intellectual connection. Some kind of connection is actually what's gonna push your journey forward. And so just knowing which journey you're on can really help you out as a writer. So 
I'm trying not to like collapse with epiphanies over here. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, so I've been struggling to to write the third book in my YA series. And I'm like, why is this book so fucking hard to write? And, and I, like, I have this protagonist who, um, you know, very typical guilty pleasure type young adult, you know, empowered badass chick um but she has a group of friends around her right this is and they always complete the missions together until the third book (laughs) oh did you isolate her (laughs) yeah oh no (laughs) wait because oh (laughs) this podcast episode is not about this particular book but uh think about the last harry potter books where like she kept isolating him and then nothing would happen. Yeah. Right? And so Hermione had to join him or Ron had to turn up with the sword because like the friend has to be there to help or Harry like cannot move forward. Like he cannot destroy the Horcrux. He cannot find the Horcrux without assistance. Yeah. Like, I mean, I uh, Rowling's for all that she's that she has problems. Like um, you can even see it when Harry is supposed to like go into like face the enemy alone like the ghosts of his dead parents show up like he literally can never be without a friend or familial network when he's entering like a danger zone or he's not gonna make it if he's alone he's not gonna make it he's gonna get a setback um but yeah why now there is definitely why heroic journeys i mean the there there's a builder's roman narrative for um for independence as the ultimate like achievement of a young adult character like that absolutely also happens um, like Spider-Man, like the origin Spider-Man story is often like one of like solo actually uh, origin hero stories for um, supernatural, uh, supernatural superhero is, are often heroes journeys. But a lot, a lot, a lot of modern um, YA is, is heroine's journeys. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta throw some people at her. She's gotta yeah, rescue somebody I, or, or someone's gotta yeah. get injured that she has to run to take care of or something like I'm definitely good companion those work great (laughs) yeah well I I mean yeah I'm gonna think about how I restructure it because she definitely she's she's grieving and basically self-isolates herself because of her behavior but then has a realization that she's a dick and needs to stop being a dick and then everybody comes back together but I think I can now based on like your amazing uh knowledge I can make it better and restructure it but anyway enough about my book that's interesting too because uh and i talk about this in the book is that like a heroine like there's a trip to the underworld metaphorical or not in most journeys in whether it's hero or heroine and a heroine's trip to the underworld can often be a grieving internal trip to the underworld and like you sink into depression and a great example of that is the twilight novels which however you emotionally feel about it um there's a whole section where bella is in the sort of depressive isolated state and what does she do she gets sadder and sadder and sadder the more and more she's isolated i mean in the films she even says i'm all right until i'm alone and i'm like that is like the most heroine statement <laughs> ever made um oh. so, yeah <laughs> i just oh oh this is brilliant and terrible and brilliant and <laughs> i'm just going to have to go and take a fucking hacksaw to my book it's fine it's fine <laughs> everyone it's fine <laughs> Okay, well, on that uh, very pertinent note, what are the most common mistakes writers make with the heroine's There journey? you go. Like, I kind of anticipated this question, but conflating the two is the biggest mistake. Now, you can write narrative journeys. And again, I go into this in, in the book. Like, you can write journeys where there are two characters, a hero and a heroine, undergoing a journey. 
under those circumstances, sometimes you don't know which journey they're going on, whether it's a hero that has kind of been injected into a heroine's journey or vice versa. And a great example of this is like buddy cops. So movies that are buddy cop movies can go either way. If they're buddy cop comedies, they're often like a hero and a heroine who are paired up together and are ending up on a heroine's journey. And if it's like a drama, it's often a hero and a heroine paired up together who are going on a hero's journey. Um, so pathos, a hero's journey are very often end in pathos or isolation where, you know, the hero is now succeeded. He has achieved victory, often through conquering an enemy in a one-on-one -on -one kind of battle, but is very isolated as a result of that. And again, Wonder Woman, the most recent movie is a great example of that because you see her win, but she's literally depicted at the very end of the movie in this sort of complete isolation because she's too powerful, but also she's too old, like she loses time. So she literally becomes kind of the most isolated being on the planet in a strange way. So you get these like, anyway, um, I can't remember where I was going with that. The US, oh, mistakes. So, um, so, but like it, so there is muddying of the waters is what I'm saying. And you do get like multiple POV narrati narratives, say an epic sci-fi or fantasy, something like Game of Thrones, where there are kind of multiple heroes and heroines all acting their paths in this sort of way. And you kind of don't really know who's on what journey until the very end. Um, sometimes you can kind of tell, you know, like um, the little female fighter character, I can't remember her name. Iris Stark? Yes, is on a hero's journey. And you can kind of tell the whole time she's on a hero's journey because every time she is on her own, she's actually even more powerful, right? And you're like, oh, right. So how is she gonna end up? She's gonna end up like by herself continuing on a journey. Like, I'm sorry if I'm spoiling this for everybody, but like, you can kind of tell that's going to be, she's never going to end up being a ruler. She's never going to end up being a general. She can't, she doesn't have that skill set. That's not her journey. So you, and, but writing to these narratives is somewhat predictable, but kind of one of the points I'm sort of making in this is that what your readers are expecting from you is that kind of predictability. And you can activate surprise better as a writer if you know what your reader's expectations are. And your reader's expectations have sort of been established by these narratives, especially in the Western world, whether your reader knows that or not. And mm. we can kind of use the dirty word tropey to talk about this, but the tropiness of romance or the tropiness of hard sci-fi or the tropiness of cozy mysteries are all kind of derived from these core root narratives, but also you know, the Gothic literary influence on those narratives in terms of tropes and archetypes. So just sort of knowing this toolkit can just be really helpful when you're like trying to figure out where you're writing and what you're doing, even if you are writing something quite complex. Yeah. So I guess oh. the, that, that to me, that's the mistake I see everybody make is yeah. the hero's journey has so dominated the zeitgeist, especially in kind of commercial genre fiction, science fiction and fantasy and stuff that, um, and, and romance, that like people are on these journeys as writers writing these characters and they just don't realize that they're not a hero's journey, that often you are actually writing a heroine's journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that might be why the book's been so fucking hard to write. <laughs> Oh, especially because now I realize that because this particular book is split. Uh, and so half of it's from the main series protagonist and the other half is from the love interest uh, and they've been separated and then they come back together at the end. But <laughs> his story is very definitely hero story, uh, which I might be why I struggled to write it because I think I've only really ever written heroine journeys without knowing that that's what I've been doing. Okay, so can you 
talk a little bit about uh, like the main points or the main beats in a um, heroine's journey? Uh, well, I, this is in the book. Um, I, I beat this one over everybody's head several times uh, and I actually wrote a graphic for it. So if you want to go to my website uh, and you can go to the books page on my website, you know, just do Gail Carragher, Heroine's Journey or whatever. Um, and, I, and there's a little graphic of, which is very much like the Hero's Journey graphic that you see everybody go on. Um, and interestingly enough, the beats are actually quite similar. So um, it's just that sort of the motivation and the power structure and everything is different. But you have these sort of patterns of withdrawal and return, withdrawal being leaving or abdicating um, a position of power or a position within society. So um, the hero, for example, um, leaves the city and goes on the quest, right? Um, the heroine is usually has something broken or taken from her. So a familial network is broken. You can think about Demeter. The Demeter myth, I suppose, is one of the most commonly known ones, but Persephone, the daughter, is raped and taken away by Hades. And that is the sort of precipitating event that motivates Demeter to begin her quest. And what her quest is for is unification. So heroines usually what they want is a reconnection with something that was taken from them. And it can be allegorical. So Harry Potter has no family. So Harry Potter's mainstay motivation, whether he realizes it or not through the Harry Potter series is family. That's all he wants. He wants a familial connection. That's his mainstay driver. Yes, he's gonna defeat Voldemort and all this other stuff on the way, but mostly what he really wants is connection. So all the visual depictions of power in the Harry Potter movies are always familial. So those moments when as a watcher, you get the sort of thrill of uplift are those moments where they're all feasting together or they're all standing together on the platform or he's with the Weasleys who are offering him the surrogate family. Those are, those are the iconic moments that make your skin tingle when you're interfacing with that series. And that's sort of the heroine as well. Um, so you get these, so she's precipitated on this quest by a lacking of something. It's hard for us to think of um, something being taken as a motivator because it comes off as the heroine not being an active character. Um, but again, this is kind of like re-scripting your brain to think about strength as the ability to ask for help. It's just, it's okay. Like you don't have to be an independent person surviving on your own all the time. Like <laughs> I give you character permission to uh, be motivated because something is taken away from you. Um, so that's usually the motivation. Um, and sometimes it's just unformed identity is kind of like with YA, that's often the motivation is just like, I don't know who I am. Like my um, queer narratives are very interesting in this because um, sexual awakening, awakening in a queer narrative is like, I have had this other identity and this whole set of expectations imposed upon me. So first love in a queer identity is also a sense of loss because your, um, the expectations of what the world wants of you has been taken away from you. So there's a grieving process with like new love in queer narratives, which I find particularly interesting, obviously, uh, because you have to let go of what everybody wants you to be because you've fallen in love with the wrong person by societal standards often. And so it is this like, why do I have to experience love and loss at the same time? And as a queer person, why is that my like why don't I just get to be in love like why does it also have to be oh I'm turning into something else so far as the world thinks I am and that is also part of like often part of sort of YA narratives so it's this kind of grief loss that starts a, a heroine's journey 
And then she usually in the myths advocates power as a part of that and, and goes into disguise. Heroines make great spy characters. Um, subversion is usually part of their nature, but also a, to a certain extent, invisibility and hiding. Uh, and so that's kind of part, often part of the heroine's journey. And so you take on the guise of somebody else. Demeter becomes the human crone. She becomes the nanny. She like, she integrate and, and partly that is an attempt to establish new kinds of family. Sometimes she's successful at it. Sometimes she gets friends. Sometimes she's just integrating herself incorrectly into someone else's family unit. And, but that's part of her process and learning journey. And this is this sort of descent spiral, which the hero also goes on. And it's part of the sort of quest into the underworld. But as she's on this descent, every time she asks for help, she gets it from the right people. And every time like she wants to form a network in a genuine way, she gets it. So a heroine also starts to gather a group around her, a group of people who give her information, a group of people who have authority in the sense of having information, honest information, true friendships. Um, a heroine's sense of betrayal is very interesting, but you know, that's another side. Uh, and she'll go on this descent. And then, so her power also becomes her sort of realization that she has this network. So the, the, ascent back out of the depths of, of the underworld is this like, oh, I've built this network. I've built this family. Sometimes she will reconnect with the family that has been lost from her. You know, like Harry Potter gets to talk to his dead parents, for example. Um, and, uh, and Demeter gets Persephone back and she gets Persephone back by asking for help from her sister and asking for help from the other gods and the other gods realizing that she is powerful and she will continue to punish humanity until they help her, until Hermes goes and gets her out until, and this is the last key moment is the heroine also achieves power because power is not her goal. Networking is her goal. So she's, she will achieve power through compromise, which a hero rarely does. And so Demeter is willing to timeshare Persephone with Hades for the rest of the natural world's life. But the end result of that compromise is something that benefits all of humanity. It gives humanity the seasons and the harvest and all of these things. So her journey also benefits others almost always. Um, but that is not the driver. That is a, often a side effect. So you end up with this like whole narrative arc that is essentially about continued patterns of withdrawal and return, which is exactly what the hero does. Except in her case, the return and the connection is the most important aspect, not the like achievement of victory or the power that results from that. This is, I mean, I, I, I can barely talk because I just, this is so deeply fascinating and I am realizing I have done so many things right and just a couple of key things wrong. And um, yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> the, the, the interesting thing for me is talking about how like the end result is beneficial for everybody. And I'm not sure <laughs> the end result is beneficial for everybody. And also about the motivation, because, um, yeah, I, 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 anyway, this is not, I'm, I need it to can like, be a, so it can be, no, but this is good because other people are probably facing this, listening to this kind of conversation, but like, it, it doesn't have to be a universal good. Like it can be, you know, if you're writing a space opera, it can be the benefit of the ship and the mm, like, sort of new okay. found family that she has on her ship or what have you, right? Or, or the school or whatever it is. It doesn't necessarily, like, it, it, but it, it should, I think it, it probably can be written otherwise. There are no absolutes in mythological analysis, but 
um, it should at least benefit someone other than just herself. It, th- there should at least be a core friendship group that benefits or a new familial network. Yeah. Yeah. I think Otherwise, she has it a, will, it will go come off as disingenuous to the reader. I mean, you can write it that way. Of course you can write it that way, but what you're unpacking and what we're dealing with here is kind of what your readers expect from this kind of a narrative. Absolutely. Um, and that's a little bit like writing a romance, but not having the main couple end up together. You kind of expect them to end up together. So if you're writing kind of a, a YA series that is this sort of narrative, then you kind of expect not just your main character, but also her friends to end up together and end up in a sort of position of, of improvement. And this, I think, might be the mistake I've made because so she essentially gets separated and his story is a story of return um, and hers is a story of vengeance uh, for for what's happened. Yeah. And so, and so this, I think, and like the whole time I'm like, the motivation is wrong. This is not what she wants, but like. They never seek vengeance. Heroines never seek. That's an, uh, that's, that's a hero's, that's a hero's journey. Yeah. Um, And it's. Demeter does not want to punish Hades. She wants Persephone back. That's all she really wants is Persephone back. She does not care about Hades. Hades is irrelevant, except that he has taken her from him. Mm. Now, interestingly enough, sort of evil queen characters or evil super feminized witch characters, are, which are kind of anti-heroine characters, are often categorized by vengeance or envy or jealousy. Like they are, because they are the heroine's journey corrupted, so um, in your case, you're not only giving her a hero's dirty motivation, but you're corrupting your, your heroine. Yeah, well, this, so yeah. I want to corrupt her. That That is, but only because she will come through the other side and bring a massive team together and save the world. And, you know, in the end, but she has to go through being broken f- before she can do that. Um, but yeah, I think I need to go back and look at some of the motivations because originally I had her both trying to, get back what was lost and also seek redemption for what for what was taken from her like so she's wants vengeance but only because of what was taken from her but yeah like this is why I'm like oh god because I'm like yeah (laughs) like in my heart I'm like the whole time I all I want to do is focus on the how do I get this back plot line but what I've written is mostly how do I you know Get revenge, get revenge for what's happened. It's all right because I haven't published it, so I can just edit it. Also, you have the essential plot in place. You just focused on the wrong one. Yeah, you have to completely change the story structure. No, just rip out about twenty thousand words. It's fine. Okay, right, let's move on from my absolute fucking disaster of a book. Um, okay, what role do side characters play in Heron's journey? Because we've spoken about how important this network is and we've spoken about how important, yes. you know, people and community and friendship and allies are. So, like, what role do side characters play? And I suppose, like, how can writers m- make that community better? How can they enrich the side characters? Like, yeah, talk to me about They are my favorite, I have to say. Like, my career is built on side characters. Um, and that is the upside of the heroine's journey because side characters tend to be non-betrayal characters. Right? They tend to come in and genuinely offer help um, most of the time and you know, sort of in the context of the heroine's journey. Um, and so you get to write these like crazy, vibrant, helpful side characters, but they also get to be contrasting to the heroine because the heroine is really good at finding um, help from people who are different from her who have different skill sets to bring to the table and so you as a writer get to write these like bright shiny 
like alter characters that are like, you know, like sparkly gay industrial espionage vampires, which is what, what I have written, you know, running spy networks or um, animal side characters are like very common and really great in, especially if you're writing YA, but, but in, in Heroine's Journeys in particular. And the, the upside of all of these sparkly shiny side characters is because you have to write them differently from your heroine, as a writer, you have to really think about like what their motivations are and how they are different. And so you end up often like peopling your universe with very diverse side characters. And then your audience can like, get extremely excited about one of those side characters and get fixated on that side character. Your audience is also more likely to see themselves in your side character if you're writing kind of a broad scope um, heroine's journey. Um, and then you get like fans who freak out about that side character and really want that side character to have their own book. And then you can write that book because <laughs> you can spin off really easily with side characters. Um, whereas the hero's journey, you're often forced to kill your side characters all the time because he needs to be increasingly isolated. Um, and this is one of the ways in which romance writers in particular have built whole careers is, is they will write um, romances with, you know, bands of brothers or bands of sisterhoods and, you know, like, or, and, and again, you can also do this with um, like urban fantasy series is or YA series is where if you end up with a good broad cast of characters, then you can just play with them and give them their own books and stuff like that. It's very exciting. Um, I love side characters. I I have definitely had a couple of emails from people threatening me if I should kill off a particular side character, which I think is just wonderful. So, yeah, yes. I, uh, I and sometimes they're just like the most memorable because they get to they get to do things that the protagonist can't. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, oh, I love them. Okay, <clears throat> um. Are there any, and we've kind of got, gone around this a bit, but I are there any, is there anything else you can add to, I guess, like genre expectations um, in terms, so you've spoken a bit about romance and how that's very definitely um, heroine's journey, but it, are, you know, is there anything else that a writer should take into account uh, when it comes to genre um, and the hero heroine's journey? Well, this is one of the reasons I had to uh, end up writing a book about this, which is, um, what has happened particularly, again, I keep saying, I keep codiciling everything because um, I'm writing from a Western English language perspective. Um, and so we have a certain set of myths that we pull on if we're writing in this particular world. Uh, and that does not necessarily apply to other parts of the world, but, um, or other languages in particular. However, that said, um, Commercial genre fiction in particular, which is the most active in utilizing the hero and the heroine's journey. And commercial genre fiction is science fiction and fantasy, young adult, non-literary young adult or non-lit fic young adults, um, and romance, adventure, suspense, crime fiction, cozy mysteries, that sort of thing. So the commercial genre encompasses um, books that people like what the Victorians would call sadly popular. Uh, books that people read voraciously and read a lot of can usually, your readers can usually identify what genres they like and uh, where to buy um, and what authors they like and what authors kind of dominate those genres. Um, space operas, epic fantasy, those sorts of things. That's all commercial genres fiction. Um, the dirty word commercial is in there is because these things actually sell. <laughs> so <laughs> there it is, yep. gasp, not that. I know. Um, Who'd have thought that we could actually make some money from our art? How, <laughs> how fucking dare we? Oh, gosh. 
Um, the other thing that most commercial genre fiction does is it draws on Gothic literature and the Western mindset. And that's because, and that has to do with the Victorian era, it main, mainly the rise of the printing press, the cheapness of books that were written um, during the 1860s, uh, Industrial Revolution and the Education of Women. Um, and so I have a whole section in there where I go into that because that, a that, that has profoundly affected how the heroine's journey is critically regarded and critically reviewed. So one of the things that the heroine's journey often is, is comedic uh, it, and it usually ends happily. And those are two things that don't win any awards or get very much critical acclaim uh, for various reasons, but a lot of which has to do with the Gothic literary movement. Um, and the Gothic literary movement, uh, this, that's particularly the sentimental or the romantic Gothics Victorian era um, is tied to all of most genre fiction now. So a lot of the tropes and archetypes that we accidentally or on purpose are using are sourced in, in the gothics actually. Um, so the narrative beats and baseline kind of is coming out of the hero or the heroine's journey, but all of the like characters that we draw on and all of the themes and the tropes that we are using are usually sourced in the gothics. And so I have a section in this book where I talk about like all of the sort of standard tropes that we pull from the gothics, all of the standard archetypes we pull from the gothics and kind of how they have impacted and influenced the different kinds of genre fiction. Um, just again, so you kind of know what you're activating and what you're using when you're writing these things um, and to give toolkits about what you can if you're you know, hitting up against writer's block. Um, but it also is key to understanding why the heroine's journey is critically disenfranchised in the modern world. Like why comedies and romances never win Academy Awards, for example. Uh, that kind of thing um, and you know it all has to kind of do with the the bad attitude that gothic lit was given <laughs> when it was originally written back in the day I think but it has also given us genre fiction so absolutely I, I think that's important if um you know a, award-winning is on people's bucket list then you know yeah, You'll have to... you need to be aware of that. Like yeah. if you were somebody who loves the heroine's journey and really is intent on writing it, you probably are not going to win very many awards. I hate to say it, but like you might get a lot of readers, voracious readers, and you might make quite a bit of money from it, but it's still pretty hard to win awards if you write comedically or if you write romantically or if you write happy. Um, even if you put what your, your characters say? through hell ahead of time. <laughs> yeah, what does that well, say about, about us? Like, just think about how much respect, you know, actors or, or script writers or whatever are given when they can make somebody cry. And I'm always like on the sidelines being like, yeah, have you tried to make someone laugh? Do you know how hard that is? <laughs> I mean, like mad props to stand-up comics. Um, and that's partly because um, humor is very subjective, but so is grief, quite frankly. Um, but yeah, I, I find it quite easy to make somebody cry. It's much harder to make them laugh. Uh, but it's just it's just an attitude. I mean, and, and in and in other like it is a psychological attitude as well. I mean, I don't I don't go into that aspect in the book, but like there's definitely a, a, a sort of ingrained human nature need to kind of dwell in sadness. Mm. Um, think about how obsessive writers will get about one bad review. You know, they'll get like twenty great ones but the one bad one is the one that keeps you up at night, right? I know. I I, I don't know that we ever get over that. Um, okay, so one last um, main question about the heroine's journey before I ask you my favourite question of the show. Um, okay, <laughs> how can writers um, work better with theme and the heroine's journey? How can they be more effective with it and, like, their messages, their... 
I think, I think, I think understanding which one you're using is really, really helpful. But in the case of the heroin's journey, like, and, and again, I go into this quite a bit, but um, one of the things that we have to understand as fiction writers that is that we are custodians of these narratives um, and we are messaging and we do have themes, whether we're intentional about it or not. I mean, and you can just, you, you can say, oh, you know, I'm just writing this you know, fiction piece or what have you. Um, but intent and purpose does count for something and it is there. And, and the, one of the ways I talk about it is that um, if you're writing heroine's journey, one of your innate messages as part of this journey that you're passing along is this importance of family and this importance of human connection and this, these ideas of network building. And that actually can have a really beneficial effect on your career as a writer, because you end up with readers who unconsciously pick up on that and then apply it to you. So you become a kind of heroine for your reader base and your reader base can be very familially loyal they can also assume a certain level of intimacy with you, like they know you personally. And, you know, like, I feel like you're my best friend is something I get a lot. And I'm like, I am both honored and slightly creeped out. Um, but you end up like developing brands and personas and whatever, where you have kind of online shared interests and stuff like that. And that kind of has to do with this, this interpersonal relationship of networking that you write. And so um, unconsciously your readers will adopt that in relationship to you, which is great because you'll have a career as an author with a lot of voracious readers, but also just being aware of that. Um, whereas if you are uh, an author who writes primarily the hero's journey, you can afford to be a little bit more kind of angry and angsty and like soloistic and like, this is how I do it. And this is how you do it. And you know, now I'm thinking of, you know, somebody like Mark Dawson or what have you. Um, so like it does have an interpersonal relationship with you and your brand as a writer. And that is something that I think um, you should be aware of that. And you should be aware of, of like what themes and messaging you are using, whether you realize that you're not like no, no narrative, no fictional narrative with a beginning, middle and end goes out into the zeitgeist and, and doesn't have a message as part of that narrative. I feel fundamentally changed by our conversation um and I need a bit of a lie down uh, <laughs> sorry no it's I mean don't apologize this is fucking amazing but damn um yeah so I have never thought about the heroine's journey in terms of how that that like that interplays with marketing but that is exactly what I am doing which is why I know I have to go and correct my fucking book um <laughs> but you know I I have this rebel group where I am bringing together like-minded rebels like-minded people like this is a community and and like it's very fucking supportive and everybody is lovely because we all share these values and principles of being naughty and rebellious together but that is what I do. Like everywhere I go, I, I hoard people together. And um, I never thought about it in terms of like, like that is what the heroine does. And I suppose, anyway, I, I can't quite articulate what's going through my head, but I can just see how you can use the heroine's journey in your marketing as well as in your stories. And I think that's fascinating. And I am going to be thinking about this for days. I, so. well, I, I go into it a little bit. Marketing is my other, like other hat that I love. Like I just love marketing. I'm a weird author. I understand this. 
Um, but one of the things I talk about is like, there's an act of gathering your keywords together as an author. Um, and if you go and do sort of meta analysis of like heavy hitter books in the heroine's journey world, like the kind of words that people and reviewers, but I'm talking about just readers will use to describe these books um, is very, very interesting. And you know, the words that tend to come up for readers of heroine's journeys in particular are all comfort words. And, and so the sort of ultimate emotional targeting of a heroine's journey is a comfort. Like we write, if you're writing heroine's journeys, you're usually writing a comfort read. Mm -hmm. If you're writing a hero's journey, you're usually writing an excitement read. So like the driver for the readers is they want to be thrilled and excited and you get words like rough and brave and exciting. The reviewers are using those sort of words where reviewers of, of romance are, are writing like lovely and delightful and charming. And, um, you know, so you get these sort of comfort things. Uh, and, it, and it's just like, and that plays into, not to be crass, but that plays into marketing in a certain, to a certain extent. Like if what you're writing is comfort, then that's what your marketing should be. Your marketing should be like, I'm writing comfort food for you all. <laughs> that's what I'm going to give you. Um, and it does mean you are establishing a very particular contract between the readers. So I talk a little bit about reader betrayal as well. Um, but so like, if you have a history of writing um, a heroine's journey and you suddenly write a hero's journey and you don't market that properly, like your readers are gonna be mad at you. And it's like the best core example of that would be if you were a consistent romance author and you write romances and your characters get together and have a happy ending and you suddenly write a book where you kill off the hero like your readers may never forgive you. <laughs> so like these two things, your career as a writer and your journeys that you tend to be writing are inextricably linked. So mm -hmm. like it does behoove you to know it, to be careful as a career move as well. So one quick question then, and I'm hoping you've read the book um, and spoiler warning for anybody listening, I'm going to ask a question about the Divergent series. I was Have you say, read you it? Talk about Divergent? <laughs> Oh my god, I'm so glad. Yeah. So I was fucking furious. Yeah, I have never. Because it's a goddamn heroine's journey, and what does she do? She kills her. Fucking off. Killed her. I was can't do it. No, I literally uh, no. threw the book across yes. the room because that I was reader betrayal, raging. You got it. Yeah, yeah. you got oh, it. Uh, I, I talk about that ex exact example uh, in there. Uh, now it was still a commercial success, which is very, very interesting. Mm. But. Um, but yeah, so that and that is a that is a app. If if you have ever, as a reader, experienced an emotional resonance where you literally want to throw a book across the room, that is reader betrayal, and it is usually a break in core narrative. Um, and and in her case, she was writing a very consistent heroine's journey, and so she suddenly was not. Uh, and you can kill a hero. Uh, your readers would probably not be happy about it if you're, say, writing Sherlock Holmes. Um, mm -hmm. because really what you should do is kill the hero's love interest. That's almost like, think about 007, right? Like generally speaking, the hero needs to end isolated, alone and slightly sad uh, or very sad, uh, but still alive if you want a series. <laughs> but, uh, but you cannot kill, kill a heroine. A heroine can kill herself tragically um, uh, for a tragic heroine's journey, but it has all sorts of other baggage attached to it. Um, but yeah, that is, that is the fatal flaw in that series. Well, like I said, it was still commercially successful, so it's an interesting series to look at. But uh, there's a reason for the vitriol that readers felt. Like, and it was, I remember that online zeitgeist it, moment. It like, drove it was, me to write because I was that pissed. 
I was like, wow. Yeah, like that was. This is unacceptable. <laughs> Literally, I was like, I will not have it. Like, yeah, uh, that was definitely one of the reasons uh, that I started well, writing. This is this is an interesting side note, which is I have not gone into in any because it's just not my field of study. Uh, I I tend to stay away from these areas for personal career reasons. But um, a lot of writers who come out of fan fiction end up being heroines' journey writers because they are writing to correct the pathos of a hero's journey often, or they're writing for a connection that they did not see in the original series. And so you get over the last, I would say 15 years, but mostly in the last decade, there have a lot of been like powerhouse heavy hitter heroine's journey, well-known authors who actually come to writing from the fan fiction universe. Um, and a lot of them are writing heroine's journey kind of in a way to correct, correct the betrayals of the past because of their past experiences. So I, I haven't ever written fan fiction, but I can definitely um, like relate to what you're saying because I was, I was livid and it wasn't <laughs> long after that that I picked up the pen because I yeah. was like, no, I can do this better. <laughs> Because I was, I had all the arrogance and no, none of the craft knowledge back then. Um, oh, yeah, what I, talk, I have so learned. I talk, about, I talk about the Divergent series in the, I think in the notes at the very end of the book. I don't think it really comes up as, as part of the like, meta-analysis. But um, yeah, I have a funny little, because I, I was expecting people to ask me sort of questions about that and certain other like pop culture moments. So I have a little uh, section in the end notes. It's basically like some quick pick pop culture takes. Mm-hmm. So one that I talk about is um, Black Panther, which essentially I just threw my hands up in the air because it is it is actually neither a hero nor a heroine's journey. Um, I talked about this recent, recently with um, Adriana Herrera uh, because it has because it has clearly has like African source mythology and all of this stuff that like, as an academic I know nothing about and as a white girl I know nothing about. But I was like, it's riveting and I can't wait for someone to write those myths as an as an analytical book. Uh, because I, I literally watched that movie and I loved it. And I was like, but boy, is it not playing by any toolkit rules I've got in my brain. <laughs> um, but so, yeah, there's a, there's a whole little endnote section where I'm like, here are some of the moments of pop culture where I'm going to like address the flaws that I don't, I can't deal with these things. Um, and please, please other people write about this. Um, but also like, here are some books that I think people are going to mention and, and the Divergent series comes up in that section. Oh, I am, I am so glad because this has been like a, I don't know how long it was now. I'm going to show my, like 10 or 15, 15 years, maybe 15 year irritation, uh, on my part. <laughs> so like, I feel like I finally have an answer and I am vindicated and like, I know why I was so cross now. So thank you. Um, all right. The podcast question. This is oh, the Rebel Author Podcast. So can you tell us about a time you unleashed your inner rebel? Oh my goodness. Uh, this is very interesting to me because um, I'm one of those people who is um, who is generally pretty lawful in terms of, uh, I'm an upholder. I like rules and regulations and I like to apply them to myself. I like guidelines and I like to apply them to other people. And, and it's just like, I like a well-ordered world. Uh, but I'm also like very morally ambiguous. Um, so, uh, you know, if you asked me to test, I would probably test Slytherin. Um, yes. So like, so I have, like, it's clearer. I have a rebel root somewhere, but I just like, I don't like to be caught out being a rebel. So it's really hard for me to like find and confess to any like super rebellious moments. 
But like, I guess for me, the biggest one was recently was writing this fucking book because I am a fiction writer. And the awesome thing about being a fiction writer is you get to lie. Um, that's what we do. We're just professional liars. And, uh, <laughs> and nonfiction is exactly the opposite of that. Um, and particularly for me, who I am not a mythological or a narrative analysis. It's not what my degrees, my, de- my degrees are in scientific analysis and with a- applied to the ancient worlds. So like, eh. so this is only very liminally touches on this like this is not my area of expertise like like i say in the book like the only authority i have is best-selling novels and a lot of books in print and so like and the fact that everything i write is a heroine's journey like that's it that's that's my authority basis um but so my rebellion was like was just that i would write this that i would have the audacity to write this i guess um, and it really was mostly out of frustration, which I guess is one of my primary motivators <laughs> in the end. It's just like, I really was waiting for someone to do their PhD on this and someone to just write this, like a dry version of this book that I could just write an analysis of and that would be that. Um, and instead it never happened. And so I just had to write it myself. Um, but that, that is probably one of my single, definitely my single biggest career act in Nebelian and probably one of the scariest things I've ever done. And I am, I'm really grateful that mostly people seem to be okay with it, but, uh, but I still very, I'm very scared <laughs> about it. After the, um, I think it was the fourth, I'm just looking at the copy I have after like the fourth or fifth recommendation, I was like, I- I'm going to have to buy this book because literally everybody is raving about how wonderful it is. So <laughs> oh, that's um, great. <laughs> yeah, no, no, thank you for writing it because I am now going to have a much stronger book, <laughs> even though I have to rip half of it out. No, <laughs> I know rewriting is the worst. <laughs> oh, it is literally the worst. It's fine. It's fine. Everything is fine. I'm going to be fine. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure, a delight and a an amazing lesson talking to you. So thank you so oh. much for your time. Can you tell listeners where they can... Oh, this is exciting. I'm ripping headphones out my ear. Can you tell uh, listeners where they can find out more about you and your books? Uh, so I'm pretty good on my SEO. Uh, so you can do Gail Carragher and uh, my website will come up and pretty much everything else. Um, the Heroine's Journey is on all major platforms. There's even an audiobook, but Amazon is taking forever to process it. Uh, if you really, really want audio, you can buy it directly from me and you can have the little MP3 files and own them yourself. Um, because uh, one of the things I did with this book, which you know I'm happy to confess here on a podcast for other authors, um, is that because my income comes from fiction with this book, I was just like the primary motivation for this book is actually to get it out into the world as, to as many people as possible. Um, so it's as wide as I could possibly make it and on as many platforms as I can possibly put it. Um, uh, the price point is for critical reasons. So um, the digital edition, I think is like $6.99, but I want the flexibility to put it on sale. And um, actually that nests it critically in a more competitive zone for other nonfiction of the same type. So uh, I was very strategic in even that. Um, but the print book is only like $14.99 or something. Um, I'm very proud of the print book. It, it has nice, it's, I, I formatted it very prettily and I tried to make it like as an academic, I tried to make it like really good for you to be able to skip around and go to the parts that interest you and like find everything easily and stuff. Um, 
So that's me. Uh, you can follow me on social media if you would like, but I will tell you that I don't really talk craft or I don't really give advice about writing as a, on social media. I'm on all social medias for my reader base, not for other authors. Sorry, guys, girls, ladies, folks. Um, yeah, uh, so, but you can follow me if you want to talk about octopi and shoes and Victorian fashion and tea. <laughs> no, and I tell you, uh, everybody should follow you because um, <laughs> you do amazing, like uh, I, what I can only describe as content marketing for your um, fiction. So yeah, like with, you know, so I think you, you are a, an absolute master in this game. Thank oh, you thanks. so much for your time today. Oh, well, thanks. Thank you so, so much for... Um, having me on and letting me burble about something about which I am so passionate and um, I hope spread the gospel. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it really has. And I am going to have a lie down after this. <laughs> so thank you also to all of the show's listeners. And of course, a big thank you to the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. That's Sasha with a C and not a S. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to the absolutely fucking phenomenal Gail Carragher, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm going to be joined by Jane Friedman, and we're going to be discussing uh, the business of being a writer, everything that you need to know uh, around your business, mindset, and different ways to make money. So join me and Jane next week. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.